Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, joining me today. It's a stifling hot one here in the Twin Cities. I don't know where it is, what it's doing for you, wherever you are, but stay cool. Uh, don't don't overheat and make sure you drink lots of liquids, stay hydrated, all that stuff. Put on sunscreen. I wear sunblock 2 million. I like, uh, I like that protection. So I'm very fair-skinned and I burn quickly. I had legendary burns as a kid. I remember just in pain that first night. <laughs> of course, you can never say, well, I'll just go out for 30 minutes. You know, when summer vacation hits, you're out the first day for eight hours. And you're paying for it, but that's somehow I'd convince myself I've got my base started now, even though my base was cherry red. Anyway, enough about that. We're going to have uh, David Wheaton joining me here in just a second, and we're going to continue our study of Genesis, which I've been loving. I'm sure you've been loving it, too. We'll have to... Uh, uh, compile all those messages together somehow so you can binge listen if you're taking a road trip or something. I think it'd be a fun thing to do. I know I'd like to do it. <laughs> take a road trip? Well, that, take a road trip and binge listen. It's a good reason to take a road trip. Yeah. You've got a lot to listen to. Yeah. If people go to the podcast after today, what they'll get is a link on the podcast to where we started, our very first, part one of Genesis with David Wheaton, and then you can kind of click from there. Nice. Well, uh, David is... Uh, a speaker and radio host and professional former tennis player and all-around wonderful guy and a man that I've been friends with. I first met David when he was four. So there you go. David, welcome to the show. Was it that long ago, yeah, Bill? Yeah, you were four. Wow. Yeah. That, oh, that's wait a minute. Ha- nearly half a century ago. Yeah, I know. How how old is, how much older is Mark than you? Uh, I think he, he was born in 58. 58. Yeah, 58. Yeah. And you were so what? he's uh, he's uh, 11, year, 11, 12 years yeah, older so than I am. That'd make perfect sense. I'd be about 16 playing Mark or one of Mark's friends, and you were probably four or five. Wow. Yeah. Goes a long way back. The Arnolds and the Wheatons. I know. It's great. All right. Let's jump back into Genesis because I'm loving it. Maybe, yeah. do, maybe do a little review where we last left off yeah. and we'll, we'll pick yeah, up I, from there. Probably a little hard to keep continuity when we're not talking every day about it. But basically, the last time we talked, we were in in this period in in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, where uh, God has made a covenant with Abram, or he turned into Abraham later. But this covenant was was really important um, because many things would re- would come as a result of this agreement between God and Abraham. And the agreement was really one way: it was God was going to do this. Uh, and it wasn't really contingent on Abraham. There was this this ceremony they had where they had this uh, Abraham sacrificed animals and God walked through it like a flaming torch or an oven. And it showed that God was going to commit to doing this. And in the doing this, this covenant had to do with Abraham was going to uh, receive a great blessing through him to himself and to those who would bless him, you know, through uh, his his offspring. He'd have descendants. There would be a great nation that come with him. He'd get this land over in modern-day Israel. So those four things, land, descendants, nation, and blessing, were were key to this covenant. 
And by the way, this would be not just for Abraham personally, this would be through the whole world. There would be blessing through the Jewish people in the world from whom the, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. And then also it's set up, and just to review here, is that this really important passage in Genesis 15 where God gives his covenant and tells Abraham and all these things are going to come through him. And then it says in Scripture that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. And this sends this sets the the pattern, the 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 foundation for how one can be right with God. It wasn't because of Abraham's good works or that he was such a great follower of God that a, that God justified him or declared him righteous or gave him eternal life. It was because Abraham simply believed God that God was going to do what he had told him he was going to do. And this passage is so key. It comes up again in the New Testament in Romans 4 the great book, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, where he uses this this example of God reckoning righteousness to Abraham. It says, for if Abraham was justified by works, and he wasn't, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Now it takes us right back to Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and was reckoned him, or is credited to him as righteousness. And then it goes on to say, because believing in our good works, Bill, is is the downfall of almost all of humanity, believing that somehow if we do good enough, we're baptized, if we go to church, if we do religious deeds, if we give to the poor, that's going to justify us before God. But it actually says in Romans 4, it's the opposite. Now, to the one who works or believes in his work, his works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And the important thing here is not only do our good works not help us in earning salvation, they actually hurt us. It's like we have more due. If we think we're going to trust in our works, we can never do enough. And so this goes back to the very beginning of the Bible where, where God credited righteousness to Abraham, not based on his good works, but because he had simple faith in God. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. All right, let's jump in, if you are ready, to Genesis 18, where there were three men visiting Abraham. Yeah, well, the, leading up to this point, so this, this covenant is established with Abraham, but the problem, the little fly in the ointment here, Bill, is um, where is the son through whom all of this, these heirs and this blessing would come? Abraham and his wife Sarah have no child, and so they devised this, or Sarah devised this terrible idea uh, of saying, well, it's years are passing here. We're not having any children. We have this this promise made to us. Well, we better take it into our own hands, mm-hmm. uh, Abraham. And I'm going to give you my maid Hagar as a wife, and you can have a child through her, and that will be like my child. And therefore, that's how God's going to do this covenant. Well, that was a very, very bad idea because through that they had Ishmael, and then there was contention between Hagar and Sarah, and then there was conflict in the family and. Sarah cast out Hagar and so forth and so on. And God kept on saying, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael that you're going to have all these this covenant promises. It's going to be through a future son named Isaac. And so, but years are passing by. And this, the, the lesson here in all of this is when we read promises in the Bible, uh, principles of scripture that we can apply to our own lives, we can't necessarily, when we pray for things that we we believe is God's will for our life, and they may be, we can't necessarily expect they're going to be in our own time frame. Uh, I, I believe Abraham was something around 86 years old or earlier 
than that, when this when this promise was made to him, this covenant of having a son and these blessings, it wasn't until he was a hundred years old, or maybe he was seventy-six, and maybe it was twenty-some years later that finally they had this son Isaac. So the application, why this is relevant for us, is when God makes promises to us. Uh, they don't necessarily come the next day. He builds us and grows us through the patience of waiting on his time. So these three men, back to your question, Genesis 18, as we turn the page here, uh, appear to Abraham, and they still haven't had they still haven't had Isaac yet. Promise still hasn't happened, and years and years have gone by. And these three men are actually not men. They're actually two angels and a pre-incarnate a visitation of Christ himself or God himself. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre when he was sitting at the tent in the heat of the day. And he looked up and he saw that three men were standing opposite him. And these men come to him, and they come with a twofold purpose, Bill. They come to tell him to repeat this promise. Abraham, don't lose faith. You're going to have a son, and he's going to be the covenant promise. And through, all, through him and through you, all the nations of the world will be, will be blessed. But they also come to make a second pronouncement that the the wickedness of these cities near where Abraham is uh, has risen up to God, and these cities are well known to every listener today. We all, it's like a it's like a phrase, Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're going to check out to see whether the the wickedness that has been reported to them is actually true. So they appear before. Abram and uh, reiterate this covenant promise to him, and then afterwards we're going to go down to Sodom. David, it's always a good reminder that when God does make a promise, he will work it out in his perfect timing, and almost never does it uh, yeah. line up with the timing you had in mind. Right. It, it, this is all setting up, by the way. The, mm-hmm. the visit from these angels and then the upcoming uh, judgment of Sodom, one is for blessing, one is for judgment. It's all setting things up that God will be glorified. You know, it, In other words, the more impossible of the situation, like Sarah is going to be— 80 or 90 years old, mm-hmm. and, and Abraham's going to be 100 years, way past the age of being able to have a child. Uh, it's all setting itself up so that God gets all the glory. Uh, the more the impossible, the greater the glory for God. So that's what's being set up here, is God's doing work in Abraham and Sarah, sanctifying them, and God's going to get the glory for bringing them, giving them a child when they're, when they're, when they're way, way past childbearing age. And it's the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. God is 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 glorified in his judgment as well because he's so perfectly just. We all deserve judgment and God is glorified not only in blessing but in in judgment as well. Yeah. And so th- that's what this whole thing is setting up for. What what is the shorter the Westminster shorter uh, catechism say the first thing say what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is ultimately our purpose for being on the earth. God created us to worship Him and glorify Him, and that's what this whole account is setting up. All right, David, I want to come back to the God's judgment uh, that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. But let me first take a break, and when I come back, we'll pick it up right there. David Wheaton is my guest. You can go to thechristianworldview.org, and we'll be back in just a minute. David Wheaton. Always enjoy our time with David. He's talking about 
book of Genesis. We've been in this study for several months, loving it. And that uh, Wimbledon music always reminds me of you on center court. Back in the days, pretty exciting to watch, that's for sure. Yeah, and they're not even having Wimbledon this year. It's just amazing. It seems like something's missing if you're a tennis player. Yeah, and I was just want to tell our listeners, we were chatting before the show uh, because it's so stifling hot here in the Twin Cities. It's 90-something, and humidity is kind of high. And I said, David, what was the hottest match and the longest match you played in bad heat? And he said, five and a half hours in Australia. Can you imagine playing no, in? It this? was just yeah. just horrible. Yeah. It's not a good memory. We, we won the match, and it's oh. not a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you must have just been drinking water like crazy. Oh. I, I just tennis, you know, the three out of five sets is a completely different animal than two out of three sets. And yeah. it goes on and on and on. And that was a long one. And there was a lot of long ones here in the in the U.S. as well, playing in cities like uh, Washington, D.C., where the humidity is so high or Cincinnati or Indianapolis or Atlanta. And I, I, I remember I remember just getting off the point here playing that. Do you remember the Indian player from India named Ramesh Krishnan? I oh, bet sure. you remember that. Yeah, name. Oh, yeah. Well, he was used to playing like in 120 <laughs> degrees over in India all the time. I played him in Washington, D.C. one time, and I was just dying on the court. And I looked over at him. He wasn't even sweating. Oh, that's too funny. I thought it was just, it was a, a nightmare of a situation to, yeah. to see him all calm and cool and collected and me dying on the court. Oh, yeah. That would have been a big psych out to see him just so calm and not sweating. Uh, it was. Yeah. It was. All right, we'll get back to uh, Genesis. Now, let's go and talk again about uh, God's judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. What yeah. uh, what caused that, David? Yeah, so so this is a dreadful, uh, fearful transition which takes place. So after, again, the, the promise is reiterated by these three men, uh, and one of them being God himself, who comes to visit Abraham, um, it, it, all of a sudden there's this transition that takes place in, in Genesis 18, and it says, then the men rose up. So they had a meal with Abraham, and he, they reiterated the promise. Sarah laughs, by the way, and, and then denies laughing about having a child. She's in the tent listening. She's thinking, oh, there's no way this is going to happen. And meanwhile, one of, uh, God himself says, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything impossible with God? And uh, so there's laughing, and this is more of an interesting thing going on there. But right after this meal, they get up, and these men look down towards Sodom, it says, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. It says in verse 16 of chapter 18, the Mm -hmm. Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then he goes on to say, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then the next verse, and and here's the contrast. Look at this contrast of the way Abraham is running his house according to God's word and righteousness and justice. The transition is in verse 20. The Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Mm. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. And the contrast is is huge, showing the righteousness of the house of Abraham because of his obedience, because of he believed God and was credited into righteousness, and the absolute opposite, the wickedness in rejecting God just a little ways away in the city of Sodom. And so I think we can look at this as, as modern uh, relevance for us today is that believers should be 
um, living their lives in a way that is in, in obedience to God and His Word. And we should be very different than what's going on in the non-believing or God-rejecting world around us. And you think of America today, you think of maybe more broadly of the world today, and you wonder how America, or how God views, let's say, America today, you know, with with the, the sin that must just rise up to him, uh, and he must smell this aroma coming up from our nation uh, with, I think you could call it, you know, nothing other than an American Holocaust going on. With the with the killing of millions of unborn babies, uh, with the with the outright promotion of sexual promiscuity and perversity in our society, and so much breakdown in the family, in, in divorce in our country, and so much division over race, uh, where God only created one race, and there's so much idol worship of money and position and materialism and pursuing higher education and all these different things that we idolize over and above God, and you just must wonder. What does God think uh, about this, and what is he going to do about this? Because that's exactly what God was considering as he walked down to enter into Sodom and Gomorrah during the time of Abraham. Mm-hmm. All right, I love that. Let's jump uh, to the next chapter. In 19, we find that two angels are visiting Sodom. What did they, uh, what did they discover yeah. when they got there? So interestingly, God doesn't actually go down there himself. He sends these two angels down there. And before they go down there, Abraham recognizes right away what's going to happen. And he immediately starts pleading with God uh, not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah uh, for the sake of, he says, if there are 50 righteous people, will you still destroy the city? You, you're, you're certainly, you're a just God. You certainly won't destroy the righteous with the wicked, will you? Well, well, what is Abraham trying to do? He's trying to save his nephew Lot who moved to Sodom. When they separated from each other, Lot, his nephew, moved to Sodom. So he's trying to save his nephew. And, and, and God says, no, I won't destroy it if I find 50. Then Abraham says, well, how about 45? How about 40? How about 35? And the conversation goes back and forth until it gets down to Abraham saying, will you destroy it even if you find 10 righteous people in Sodom? And God says, I won't destroy it if I find 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom. Well, the city was destroyed, so that means there's less than 10 hmm. righteous people there, wow. and only Lot and his wife and, their, and his two unmarried daughters were actually saved, and his wife actually died by disobeying God, by looking back during the, the destruction. But the angels uh, discovered a horrible situation uh, in Sodom. Uh, they walk down their bill, and they, they find that Lot, uh, the nephew of Abraham, is sitting there in the gate of Sodom. In other words, he has some level of authority in the city, He may, maybe like on the city council, so to speak. And he immediately recognizes these men when they walk into city, the city, just as Abraham did when they approached his tent as being, whoa now, these are not like the rest of the people in this place. And he quickly gets these two angels who are posing as men into his own house. And for good reason, he, he does this because the city is so dominated by homosexuality that immediately the men of the city, and by the way, it says this, it wasn't just a few people, it says the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. I mean, this is how much this city had been given over to homosexuality. They were going to aggressively come to these new visitors to the city of Sodom, and they wanted to sexually assault them. And so Lot is there caught inside of his house with his house being surrounded, and he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he, he cowardly says, well, I have two daughters. Why, you know, can't you be with them instead? I mean, they're just a horrible— 
horrible decision and horrible situation that Lot is in. And finally, these angels strike these men surrounding the house who are trying to press into Lot's house. He strikes them blind. And it says in Scripture that they were they wearied themselves, even after they were blinded, trying to find the doorway. And the lesson here, this image is of that sexual sin outside God's design can never be satisfied, hmm. whether it's pornography or homosexuality or heterosexual morality, it can't be reasoned with. These men had no time for a lot to try to, you know, they're there, don't do this. They just wanted to be after their wicked, wicked desires. And this is the way it is. And this is why God's judgment came to that city. Yeah, well said, David. So you look at this account and how can this be misinterpreted today? Well, how do you hear that this, you know, why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah today? What do you hear kind of in mainstream culture, or what do you hear in, let's say, liberal Christianity? They'll say that God did not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone rained down from heaven because of their homosexuality, their sexual perversity in the town, uh, in the cities. Uh, They'll say it was because of their lack of hospitality. Have, have you heard that before, Bill? I have heard that, yes. Okay, so that, that's a very common liberal interpretation of Scripture, but th- that is completely an incorrect way to interpret this judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain there. It, it's clear in other parts of Scripture that it was the sin of homosexuality and the perverseness of the city that caused God to judge it. You go into the New Testament, there's a couple of different references to, to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the New Testament. I'll just give you one. In, in Jude 1, verse 5, Now I desire to remind you, he writes, though you know all these things yourself, uh, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then he goes into Genesis 6 and talks about the angels, uh, who he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness. And he's talking about these judgments of God that God is willing to judge. And he says in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So it wasn't because of a lack of hospitality that God destroyed the the cities of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was because of, as it says here, gross immorality. Now, this doesn't mean that God will judge every city where there's homosexuality. It just means he did it there and then. He could do it elsewhere. He may do it in different ways. But the, the, the principle is that God judges sin. And that it is the point of that is to, for us to examine ourselves and to repent of our sin and to get right with God before he judges us. And that's the great lesson here with Sodom yeah. and Gomorrah. David, I love this study. Thank you so much for uh, being so passionate about telling this important story in Genesis. I just love it. Well, there's so much here. And as the title of the series says, it's so relevant for us today. It truly mm-hmm. is. Things that happened thousands of years ago are relevant for our Christian lives today. Well, thank you so much, uh, and we'll look forward to the next installment of Genesis and how it's relevant for today. Me too, Bill. Thank you. Have a great great day. You too. Yep. David Wheat has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David and his spectacular writing and speaking and blogging. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Pastor Brian Chappell will be with us. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. 
I have on our studio line Dr. Brian Chapel. He is the senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. He is also the host of a daily half-hour radio Bible teaching program, Unlimited Grace, and the founder of chairman of Unlimited Grace Media. So I will be taken to school today, which I can't wait for. Hello, Brian. How are you? <laughs> Thank you, Bill. What school are you thinking about going to? Well, <laughs> the, the one you're taking me to to show me how to be good on the radio, my friend. Uh, well, I, I have a feeling I'm going to be the learner. Well, I, I love your book, uh, and it's called Unlimited Grace, The Heart Chemistry That Frees from Sin and Fuels the Christian Life. Uh, you talk about uh, in this book that uh, obeying God should be pure joy. Yeah, when we have understood how great is His grace toward us, then our obedience is not drudgery. It is the joyful response of gratitude. And that, that sense of thankfulness for what God has done, you know, is the blessing of the season that we're in. But it, it doesn't have to just be, you know, a season of holidays, but every day that if we really perceive how great is God's provision of his Son, that we can respond by saying, thank you, Lord, in the way that we, we live and love and care for others and, uh, and obey him. It's a way of saying, Lord, let, me, let my life honor you, and, and that's our blessing. Yeah, Brian, you've always been exceptional at illustrations, and the book uh, got me right away when you started talking about the king's gift. Would you share that story with our listeners? <laughs> and, I, and I won't take credit for that story because you know, as you've looked at it, that's that's an old, old story. But I know, it's still so helpful. But it brought uh, it to our so attention. The, yeah, the the story is that you know there was once a king who was walking across his uh, castle walls, and as he was in a high perch, he kind of looked out and he saw that there was a child in a distant field collecting flowers. And the more the king looked, he recognized the child was one of his own. And as he looked at the bouquet that was being gathered, he recognized it was being wrapped in a royal ribbon. And suddenly the king recognized that child in the distant field was gathering those flowers as a gift for the king himself. Mm-hmm. And, and yet the more the king looked, he recognized that the child, because he was a child, did not only gather flowers in the distant field, but also some some weeds and some ivy and some thistle. And recognizing the deficiency of that, the king called for his oldest son. And he said, in a little bit, your sibling is going to come back to the castle, and he has a bouquet for me, but it's got some problems. So I want you to go to my garden. And when your sibling comes to the palace and he has this bouquet, I want you to take out the weeds and take out the thistle and take out the ivy and put in their place the flowers from my own garden. And that's just exactly what the oldest brother did when the child came to the castle. And uh, as the child came and he had had his bouquet changed by the work of his older brother, the king's oldest son, because the bouquet now had in it the flowers from the king's garden. Nonetheless, the child came into the king's throne room and presented the king with a bouquet. And the child said, My father, here are the flowers that I have prepared for you, not recognizing that all the time it had been the work of the king that had made the flowers acceptable through the work of the oldest son. Hmm. And uh, that... That parable, if you think of who the characters are, the, the king is God the Father, and the oldest son, well, that's Jesus. 
And the child, that's, that's you and me. Right. And the bouquet, well, that bouquet full of flowers and weeds and thorns and thistle and ivy, that's, that's our good works. Mm-hmm. And the flowers from the king's garden that are put in their place by the oldest son, that's the righteousness of Christ in our behalf. So that when we stand before God, we will never ultimately say, God, you need to accept what I'm offering you because of how good it is. We say, God, accept what I offer you because Jesus has made it right. And that's not just a, a parable for you know one day in our past or even one day in our future. We stand before the throne of God in glory. That's for every day that we say, what makes my work right before God is God, through Jesus Christ, is sanctifying, purifying, making right what otherwise would just be filthy rags by the work of Jesus Christ. And now I have to give credit where credit is due. That story is over a thousand years old. So that's that's known as the Flowers of Anselm, that story. Yeah. And uh, one of the church fathers uh, wrote wrote that story, which still makes a lot of sense when we understand it's God's provision, not ours, that makes us right before God. Right, but that's still, I still must say, Brian, you're an awesome storyteller, and I'm hoping some of this will be rubbing off on me during this uh, interview. <laughs> now, well, thank you. Uh, I want to talk about personal holiness, because it's something that doesn't get discussed very often. And there's a, a part in your book where you talk about the goodness barometer that really got my attention, because it's, you say, because we know that God expects us to make progress in our sanctification to grow in personal holiness, we can begin to think that our status is determined by our progress. We begin to base our justification on our progress in sanctification. How are we doing with regard to personal holiness? Well, it's, it, it's the common misperception, isn't it, that, that the degree of God's love for me is based on the degree of my goodness toward Him. So, that, you know, if I mess up, if I fail, if my works are not perfect, then God's love is made imperfect and His acceptance of me. So it's, it's very important that we learn to distinguish our status before God from our sanctification or our progress before God, better way of saying it. So what's our status? Uh, I am robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 2 that we are already seated in heavenly places, even as we walk this earth. Wait a second, how can I be seated in heavenly places? Uh, personally, I'm just seated right here in Peoria, Illinois. How could I be <laughs> seated in heavenly places? And the answer is because we're already recognized by God as having been made right before him eternally by the work of Jesus Christ. You know that Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives. Where does he live? In me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith, not in my good works, but in the work of Jesus Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Mm -hmm. So I I recognize that my life is now to be lived in response to the grace of God, not to gain the grace of God. And when that happens, when I'm not in pride saying, God, look at my great works, look how good I'm doing, love me more now, which actually takes us more distant from God, creates pride and distance. Instead, when we're saying, Lord, my best works are only filthy rags, but you receive them because of your goodness. And because of that, I want to please you more. I want to grow in my ability to to serve you. And for that reason, the grace of God is so counterintuitive. You know, it, it, I talk about the difference between the math of the mind that says, well, if God's going to forgive me later, why not sin now? <laughs> 
But there's a chemistry of the heart that's overriding the math of the mind. And the chemistry of the heart is always saying, if God has loved me so much to provide his own son, then I want to live for him. I want to please him. I want to love him back. And it's that that heart chemistry that is the true power and motivation of the Christian life. I love it. Now, Brian, would you say that there are some things we have to learn as well as some things we have to unlearn? Because when you talked about when your performance is not always what you think it is, all of a sudden then that, that dictates into us thinking God doesn't love us as much. That's something we just got to unlearn, isn't it? It is, because it's the human instinct, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. every other relationship in life at times, you know, if I work hard, then I get more money. If I if I work longer, I get a better promotion. You know, my, my performance is the basis of my status. But what God is saying is no faith in Christ's performance is the basis of your status before him. And knowing that you are received, knowing that you are loved, knowing that you are already in God's eyes— as loved as his own child. You know, I, I, I'm not meaning to be arrogant. I'm, I'm meaning to be honest. Right. God loves me. God loves you as a follower of Jesus Christ. God loves you and me as much as he loves Jesus. That's stunning, and that's isn't not it? Based, it is. It, and it's not because you and I are as good as Jesus. It's because we're, the words of the Apostle Paul, hidden with Christ in God. And I love the image of of those Russian nesting dolls that kind of see on people's mantle places, you know, the doll inside the doll inside the doll. Right. And and to perceive myself, I'm I'm inside Christ. He covers me, he surrounds me, his righteousness, his identity, all of that is is around me. And what it does is it gives me such security and joy that I actually want to respond with greater gratitude and ability, because the joy of the Lord is our strength greater joy and ability to serve God. Brian, my little 49cc brain has a lot of trouble wrapping my um, arms around that idea that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. Uh, you know, I, 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 I love the story. Again, not my own, so I give the credit away. Uh, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, his name was John Bunyan, and there was a time that Pilgrim's Progress was was the most produced book in the world apart from the Bible. And when when John Bunyan wrote that account, he talked about every believer has a a gracious mirror provided by God. And the nature of that mirror is this. On one side it's just a regular old mirror. You look at it and you see your face with, you know, the warts, the blemishes, the wrinkles. But on the opposite side of the mirror is the image of Jesus Christ. And when we look in the mirror, we see our faults. But when God looks at us, he looks mm. from the Jesus Christ side, <laughs> and he sees his own child. And it's true, I see my sin. I'm convicted of my, my sin, my guilt, my wrong. But I remember what the Bible is saying, that I'm hidden with Christ now, that, that Christ has become my identity. And I recognize, God, you know the worst about me, but you are choosing to perceive me from the Jesus side of the mirror, for which I give you thanks, and for which I want to offer my life in praise. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian Chappelle is my guest. Uh, we're talking about his book, Unlimited Grace, the heart chemistry that frees from sin and fuels the Christian life. Uh, Brian, is there a difference between what was righteousness in the Old Testament? Uh, you know, that was often perceived as God's people doing good works, and then now as a New Testament believer. How are we righteous now? Well, the, the righteousness of God that the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Romans is not just about 
right standards. It's about the good heart of God. So what has God done with his righteousness? Well, God has not changed the standards, but he has shown us his heart. And the righteousness of God is, you still obey me, but when you do not, I show you mercy. The righteousness of God is not fully defined by the standards of morality. The righteousness of God is holy standards and a loving heart. Both of those are the righteousness of God, whereby he who is just provided for the unjust, those who are not right before him, by the provision of his Son. So he gave the just, Jesus, for the unjust, you and me, and that was the righteousness of God. He was still righteous because he was balancing the scales of justice, but he was also merciful in heart by providing his Son for you and me. So the righteousness of God, yes, it is about the holy standards of God, but it's also about the good heart of God on display in his work through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Brian Chapel is my guest. Uh, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more uh, about his book, Unlimited Grace, The Heart Chemistry That Frees from Sin and Fuels the Christian Life. When I come back, Brian, I want to talk about this heart chemistry. I want to understand more about what that means. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Dr. Brian Chapel is my guest. He is the senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. And we're chatting about his book, Unlimited Grace, which is a subject I love. Every time we get an opportunity to talk about grace, I want to hear about it. And Brian is a masterful storyteller and a great uh, teacher. And uh, as we talk about the finding the heart chemistry in the Bible, what does that mean, Brian? Well, what I'm what I'm concerned about is everybody uses the word grace, and often we use the word grace as what gets me out of trouble in the past. You know, my past sin, God, by his grace, forgives it, pardons it, gives me a clean slate. But then we often think, well, that's that's kind of the end of grace. Now I, now I better measure up and stay on the God's good side or I'm in trouble. You know, God's going to get me if I step out of line. And what would it mean to believe that grace is not something that just applies to the past, but actually becomes the, the motivation, the fuel for the Christian life now? What if I really believed that God did not just pardon my past sin, but by the work of Jesus on the cross, he pardons my present sin, he even pardons my future sin? Uh, after all, it was the death of Christ once for all that provided for my judgment to be put away. And so God is not saying, well, I forgave you in the past, but I'm not going to forgive you in the future. No, he, he has surrounded me with his love. Well, why, why should I honor him then if I'm already forgiven for all sin, past, present, present, and future? Well, the reason I honor him now, first, there are consequences to sin. If you tell lies, people are going to think you are a liar. <laughs> if, you, if you're unfaithful to your spouse, it will destroy your family and future. Mm. So there are consequences to my sin. But God has already provided for those who are true believers in Christ the means for my past, present, and future sin to be forgiven. And for that reason, I don't live taking advantage of his grace, trampling on the blood of Christ as though it means nothing. 
Rather, I say, this, this great grace gives me not only confidence that my sin has been forgiven, but gives me incentive to serve my Father in heaven. How, how gracious he has been. We love because he first loved us. And Jesus said what would be the consequence. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll, you'll want to walk with me. And that's just what the heart does. When we recognize how, how beautiful is the love of God toward us, we want to walk with him. You ready for another story, Bill? I love one. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of it at times uh, when, when I began my ministry. So I was single and serving a, a little bitty church in southern Illinois, a good Easter Sunday, might have been 21 or 22 people. And uh, nonetheless, uh, one Sunday when I was over preaching at that church, one of my church officers asked, would, would you like to go on a picnic with my family after church? Now, I'm single, and food is being offered. What do you think I said? Mm, I said, big I yes. said you bet. Big yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big yes. Yeah. And, and we drove to this this wonderful park on a beautiful fall day. The sky was blue. The sun was shining. The leaves were brilliant colors of gold and red, and we had the picnic. And at the end of the picnic, the 20-something-year-old daughter of that officer said to me, would you like to go on a walk with me? Now, listen, the sky is blue. (laughs) The sun is shining. She's got blonde hair, uh-huh. green eyes, red sweater, and she says, would you like to go on a walk? What do you think I said? Uh, you better have said, said yes, Brian. I said, I'm giving you, you the biggest bet. noogie you've ever had. <laughs> yeah. And I've been walking with her for over 40 years now. And what's the reason? She's beautiful. Of course I want to walk with her. And when God is showing us in the scriptures his beautiful grace, the work of God on our behalf going from the garden all the way to the new creation, God's work in our behalf. And he's saying, look how beautiful is my heart, my unrelenting love for you, the grace that has always been there for you, always remains for you. When we see how great is his love for us, and he says, now will you walk with me? Our hearts say, wow, I sure want to walk with the Lord. He's so beautiful. His love's so great. Why wouldn't I want to walk with him? And, and that's what grace is doing. It's not just saying, oh, he forgave my sins, so now sin city, here I come. No. When I understand how beautiful is the grace of God, I really deeply perceive it, then I want to walk with that Lord. And that's what grace does. It doesn't just free us from past sin. It fuels the heart with love for God that's actually the strength of the Christian life. Mm. Brian, yesterday in the studio, uh, when we were not on the air, we were talking, uh, Rebecca, my producer, we were chatting about grace, and when you have a past sin that you want to go back and revisit, uh, the discussion went to, well, Jesus is saying, if you go back there, you have to take me with you, because I've already paid the price for that, and how God's grace just shows up all the time in new and fresh places, if you if you depend on him and lean on him and receive his grace? Well, I, I, I go back to that, to that green-eyed blonde I was just telling you about <laughs> my wife. Yeah. And, and now, we, at this point, we have, we have four adult children, and we have six grandchildren, and we, you know, we've had wonderful blessings in our life. And yet my wife will still say there are times when Satan will pull that accusation card and he will say to her, you know how you messed up when you did this when your children were small? You know how you messed up when you didn't do enough on this particular activity? You know how you messed 
and she said she can get up feeling so down because what she's doing is she's going through the file cabinet of her past and beginning to examine all the mistakes and all the frailties and all the imperfections. And, and, and what she said she's had to do is she's had to say, I believe by faith that all of those files of my sin are in a locked file cabinet. And before I ever unlock that file cabinet in mind or memory, I have to remember that that file cabinet is only unlocked with a key called mercy. Mm-hmm. Always the key of mercy first. Are those past failures real? Yes, they are. But as believers, we don't examine them unless we open the door with a key called mercy. I love it. That's what, that's what Jesus taught us to do. Not that the sins weren't real, but that they have been forgiven, taken as far away as, uh, from us as the East is from the West. And for that reason, while the sin is real, while the memories are real, we walk in newness of life with hearts that love him and are freed from that guilt because of his work in our behalf. Mm-hmm. Brian, talk about grace going forward whenever you're involved in any ministry endeavor or work or any kind of life situation where um, when you took over that very historic church, things were not very good and you were not really prepared, were you, for the problems that were going to come for you in a very privileged position you had? Oh, you're remembering the early part of that book again, and I'm, I'm, I, you know, it's chapter twelve. To think back, at, I know. I, I, well, <laughs> it, it was early part of my ministry is what oh, I. Oh yeah, right, 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 Early part right. of my ministry. Oh yeah. And and it was that time in my my life when I was just preaching the the Christianity of of straighten up, fly right, and do better. You know, and God love you for that. <laughs> until that message crushed me. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I I was a young pastor of an historic church. And the consequence was I was just telling people, you just got to do better and better and better and better. And it was a time that there was an economic disaster in our community, and people were struggling with depression and despair and alcoholism and all the abuse that comes into homes when they're broken. And I I was just telling them, you just keep doing better. But I couldn't even keep up with my messages. You know, (laughs) I felt like I'm I'm failing. You know, I'm, I'm not reaching. I'm not... And I recognized I wasn't even out of my 20s, and I believed I was a failure, and I was leaving the ministry. And what the Lord taught me was, look at all those people in the Bible that God uses. And, you know, they're all a mess. You know, what did David do? Well, yeah, he did some great stuff before he committed adultery and raised bad children and and even abandoned the Lord's glory at the end of his life, murdered a man whose wife David won, and you just kind of begin to track through the so-called heroes of the Bible. And you recognize if you really do that, there's only one true hero, and that's the Lord Jesus. And everyone else is a mess of some sort that needs a Savior. And when you recognize that's the message, then not only can you say to other people, listen, if you're a mess like those people in the Bible, God sent his son for you. But if you're the mess you can remember God sent his son for me too. And that's what lifts my head and gives me strength and gets me going again. Is not my perfections, not my performance, but the recollection of, of a God who has provided his son for my sin. And when I know that, I want to walk with him. Mm-hmm. Brian, nod your head up and down just real quickly. Okay, perfect. Okay, <laughs> okay perfect. You've agreed to part two of our interview. We'll have to do at another time. <laughs> Because we just didn't get it all covered. I've got 71 questions left to ask. 
And, oh, I, and really, uh, I am so fascinated by you and your book that I just want to continue. So if I can have you back on the program, I can ask my questions. But before we just uh, close up this time together, uh, to talk about the thing that you hope, hope your readers of your book will walk away from, uh, with, after reading this. Well, what I hope they walk away with is really that, that subtitle, that understanding that grace not only frees us from sin, we're not just looking backward, but that grace also fuels the Christian life, that people live in the joy that is their strength. And that's not just sentiment. That is the true power of the Christian life, that I am walking in gratitude, thanksgiving, and joy because of what God has done. And that truly is where there is strength, fuel. If you're trying to live for God on an empty tank, you won't get very far. Mm -hmm. But when your tank is full of thanksgiving, then you have the true strength of the Christian life. Okay, so you have agreed to come back. So this, uh, we'll just say goodbye for now, and then we'll have you back on, because I would love to continue <laughs> this conversation. Dr. Brian uh, Chapel has been my guest. Unlimited Grace is the name of his book, The Heart Chemistry That Frees from Sin and Fuels the Christian Life. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Yep. And Lord thank bless. You. Thank you so much. We'll take a short break and be back with lots more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.